Westminster Town Hall Forum. The Town Hall Forum originates from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, senior minister here at Westminster and moderator of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Since 1980, the Westminster Town Hall Forum has provided a platform for a variety of speakers who have addressed public issues from an ethical perspective. Today's speaker follows a distinguished array of speakers that began with Watergate prosecutor Archibald Cox and most recently has included the likes of Elliot Richardson, Amy Tan, Cornell West, David McCullough, Georgianne Geyer, and Gordon Parks. Today's speaker is Mr. John O'Sullivan, a British citizen educated at London University, currently serving as editor of the National Review. Co-sponsor for today's forum is the Center for the American Experiment. John O'Sullivan has served as editor of the National Review, the most important conservative journal in post-World War II, the post-World War II era. His previous posts have included special advisor to the British Prime Minister, associate editor of the London Times, assistant editor of the London Daily Telegraph, and editor of Policy Review. Mr. O'Sullivan has published articles in Encounter, Commentary, Public Review, The New York Times, The American Spectator, and The London Spectator. His lectures on British and American politics, he lectures on British and American politics, and serves on the executive advisory board of the Margaret Thatcher Foundation. He also worked with the former prime minister on her memoirs. Mrs. Thatcher said of Mr. O'Sullivan with affection and humor, John O'Sullivan skied in occasionally, tuned up the arguments, paired the prose, and pushed forward the narrative. Now he is doing the same for the National Review, pushing forward a conversation about political and economic philosophy. The face of American politics as we have known it in the latter part of the 20th century has been changed by a conservative political and economic philosophy. As we have seen in some of the negative ads that have marked this electoral campaign, the word liberal has taken on the flavor of derision and dismissal, a 180 degree turn from the 60s when the label conservative was similarly derided and dismissed. What is the meaning of the so-called conservative view of the world? What are its ethics? And what are the key issues from the standpoint of a conservative worldview? What are the underlying assumptions about who we are as human beings and what it means for us to live together successfully in community? To speak to these issues, we could think of no one better prepared than John O'Sullivan. Would you please welcome to the Town Hall Forum, Mr. John O'Sullivan speaking on the topic, A Conservative Worldview and American Politics. Well, Pastor Stewart, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for that very warm welcome and, and uh, for that much too flattering introduction. As uh, Lyndon Johnson once said when someone introduced him in similar terms, my father would have enjoyed it and my mother would have believed it. Um, my topic today is American politics, uh, but uh, you may feel uh, you are listening to the wrong man when I tell you that last year a British magazine carried an article from me under the headline, Why Clinton Can't Win. Now, in my own defense, I should say that the title was not mine but the editor's, and that the article itself said that Clinton could win, but that it would be difficult for him to do so because the long-term trend in American politics was flowing towards the right. And that, indeed, uh, I would still defend as a reasonably prescient uh, judgment. For the results of this divided election show a number of features. First of all, that President Clinton won a narrow victory with less than 50% of the popular vote. Secondly, 
that his party's loss of both houses of Congress it was in 1994 was confirmed in this election result. The GOP retained Congress for a second time, for the first time, since 1928, the last year before the Depression. And thirdly, that both the Democrats' victory at the presidential level and the GOP's congressional win um, were achieved by policies and arguments on both sides that until quite recently would have been uh, reg regarded and recognized as conservative arguments. Ideas like a balanced budget, fiscal restraint, tax cuts, both sides were offering tax cuts, differing only on how large they should be, and reform of the welfare state. Um, so we are looking, therefore, at a most unusual state of affairs. And we must ask ourselves what these re remarkable results signify. Now, it is always difficult to interpret election statistics and opinion poll data. What are we to make, for example, of the data from exit polls that 53% of smokers voted for Bill Clinton? That seems to me to be a hell of a way to quit. Let me suggest, therefore, uh, that in 1996, American politics has been temporarily frozen in a state of arrested development. Uh, in the jargon of the political scientists, um, we are in the middle of a realignment between the parties. The American people seem to have rejected the liberal democratic view of expanding and expansive government taking on ever greater responsibilities from the rest of society, uh, and uh, such as, for example, a nationalized healthcare system. But they have not yet embraced uh, the conservative Republican notion uh, of transforming, of transferring back to the community, back uh, to the states, back to the individual, back to families, back to voluntary organizations, many of the responsibilities which government has taken on since the, since the um, well, really, uh, since 1928, uh, but uh, more particularly since LBJ's great society of the 1960s. Uh, it is therefore, the people therefore, uh, have voted for a period of reflection in which neither party has the power to realize its full program because each checks the other. But within this period of um, uh, half-conducted uh, realignment, uh, there is a definite lean to the right. Yes, I think the public mood is, yes, um, uh, the status quo in one sense, but a more tightly run and fiscally responsible status quo. Yes, a compassionate society, but compassion that will assist the poor to independence, not lull them further into dependency. In a way, what America wants and what the president offered was less of the same. This is interpreted to some extent uh, by the commentators today as a move to the center, and in a way it is. But the center itself has moved, generally since Ronald Reagan, more particularly since 1994, so that where once the moderate right would have been, there now the center rests. Now, why this deferment? Why have the people, in a sense, decided to stop at this point? Well, put simply, the president, like all of the incumbents, was the beneficiary of an economic recovery. We might call it the Bush recovery, and the Republicans might have called it the Bush recovery, but then they would have been reminded that the Bush recovery was from the Bush recession. Um, this was an upward swing in the trade cycle that the president inherited from his predecessor and which Alan Greenspan at the Federal Reserve nurtured very effectively. There's no doubt that Mr. Clinton and Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin deserve some credit for the continuing recovery, but then so, as I've mentioned, does Mr. Greenspan, and so does the 1994 Republican Congress, which forced the administration to accept a balanced budget 
uh, which uh, joint cooperation helped soothe the markets. Against this relatively good economic performance, Mr. Dole's argument that the economy was the worst for 30 years simply was unpersuasive. It sounded shrill and unrealistic. Uh, so, uh, but even if they had taken a different tack, the Dole-Kemp campaign would have faced an uphill struggle from the start. Nonetheless, one might argue that there were attitudes held by the electorate which would have made the GOP, which, on which the GOP could have played more successfully than in fact it did. For instance, exit polls show that the voters, 52% uh, of the voters, thought the federal government should do less, with only 42% wanting it to do more. 54% rejected the idea, which has been very current in the media, uh, that the Republican Congress was too conservative. And natural Republican issues like crime, educational standards, and the deficit uh, were rated as very important by the voters, but as the outcome shows, they seem to have benefited Mr. Clinton more than Mr. Dole. Two things, I think, happened here. First of all, the president waged a brilliantly unscrupulous campaign, and no politician should begrudge him the credit for doing that. He stole Republican issues, he struck conservative attitudes, he courageously endorsed such moves as school uniforms and teenage curfews, which have nothing whatever to do with the federal government and about which the federal government has no great plans to do anything. More important, he was in effect allowed by the Republicans to um, exploit much bigger natural Republican issues, signing, for example, bills to curb welfare and to limit uh, illegal immigration. Uh, this is particularly interesting because it's the result, really, of a divergence of interest between the Congressional Republicans and the Dole campaign. Mr. Dole had every interest in denying Mr. Clinton the opportunity to sign such measures and to boast about them in the election campaign. But the Congressional Republicans wanted uh, some evidence of achievement to take home to the voters, and so they wanted some bills like that passed. And there was this... Uh, curious alliance between the president and the Republican majority against Mr. Dole, which, as I say, enabled Mr. Uh, Clinton to sign conservative bills while simultaneously assuring his own supporters not to worry. When he got back, he'd fix them later. By contrast to this very effective campaign, the Republicans ran an inept, confused, and timid one. It began in San Diego with a convention that might have been produced by Oprah Winfrey. It was, in effect, a celebration of victimhood and diversity designed to show that Republicans were human beings, too. Now, in any contest between Republicans and Democrats, and particularly in any contest between Republicans and Bill Clinton over who is the most obvious human being, Bill Clinton is going to win. I mean, he is one of the most attractive and winning politicians. Uh, on the world stage. And since his convention was only a month later, uh, and since it took a uh, very similar tack, uh, naturally, uh, he had the benefit of that particular row. The Republican campaign continued to, um, to founder as it went on. To begin with, it concentrated far too much on the theme of cutting taxes. Now, cutting taxes to restrain government as well as to empower people is always going to be an important part of any Republican message to the people. But it's not going to be nearly so important or appealing a message at a time when tax rates are lower than they were in the late 1970s, 38% as opposed to 70% at the top rate, and when the economy is much stronger than it was in the late 70s when you had a stagnationary economy with very high interest rates and a very high rate of inflation. In those circumstances, Reagan was able to make a great appeal with tax cuts because people could see the economy needed, very badly needed, a serious stimulus. But uh, the circumstances today were mu uh, much less persuasive in that regard. So they concentrated far too much on um, uh, the question of tax cuts and neglected the social issues, in particular, partial birth abortions. These are issues which I think concern all religious people, 
but which especially concerned Catholics and the so-called Reagan Democrats. They were never really effectively and seriously addressed by the Republicans, and opportunities to raise them in the debates were thrown away. Or to take another issue, opposition to gay, uh, the Republicans' opposition to gay marriages. Now, this is a view shared by about two-thirds of the American people. Yet, the Republicans were so furtive and nervous about raising it, and they did so in such um, a, a timid way, uh, that Bill Clinton was actually able to steal that issue from them as well, signing the Defense of Marriage Act late at night so as not to offend his gay supporters, but then boasting that he'd done so on Christian radio stations in the course of the campaign. And aggravating all these faults were the Republican candidates themselves, who despite their fine personal qualities and the gallantry of the final, um, uh, the final push, uh, nonetheless failed to articulate a message that was at once clear, appealing, and credible. As a result, the Republicans saw several cohorts of the Reagan coalition depart. The much-touted gender gap, for example, finally hurt the GOP, but not in the way that is normally said. Women voted for Clinton over Dole by 54 to 37%. But the Republicans have won elections in recent years with that kind of disparity among women voters. They did so because the gender gap was offset by the fact that men were voting Republican by large majorities. This year, Clinton split the male vote with Dole 44 to 44%. The same thing happened with the so-called marriage gap, actually a, a, a gap which is not mentioned nearly so often as the gender gap, but which may be more important. This is the, uh, the fact that married people tend to vote for conservative or Republican candidates, uh, whereas single people tend to go for the Democrats. In this election, single people duly went heavily for the Democrats, 57 to 31%. Uh, however, this year, married couples also split absolutely evenly between Clinton and Dole, instead of providing the Republicans with a compensating um, vote. And that's important because the married group is a much larger one. Or take a, a group on which, at the beginning of the year, Republicans were pinning many hopes, Catholics. In recent years, Catholics have voted heavily for the GOP, providing the majority of Nixon and then Reagan Democrats. This year, 50%, 54% of Catholics voted for Clinton, joining Jews, 80%, other religions, 60%, and no religion at all, 59%, in voting for Bill Clinton. It was only Protestants uh, and the self-described white religious right who remained faithful to Bob Dole, namely 49% of Protestants and 65% of the religious right. But even in those groups, uh, Mr. Clinton who reminds some of Elmer Gantry in certain moods, achieved a healthy 42 and 26% of those groups respectively. As for younger voters, whom Reagan brought into the Republican column, the figures show a hemorrhaging to Clinton, 53% of them, and to Perot, 11%. That was Perot's best performance in any age group, 11% of the young. The most striking indication, however, of the GOP's failure to rally its natural supporters is that Bill Clinton split frequent talk radio listeners with Bob Dole 46 to 45%. And Mr. Dole got a Burr majority, 51% of gun owners, compared to Clinton's 39%. So the election of 1996 was an anomaly. It was a battle in which natural Republican territory was seized early on by the Democrats and defended against a series of weak and spasmodic thrusts uh, uh, from the Republicans. An observer who had no previous knowledge of the two presidential candidates but had arrived that day from Mars might well have concluded that of the two, Bill Clinton was the more conservative. He wasn't, of course but the Republicans had the burden of explaining why not, and they never really managed to do so effectively. Uh, that helps to explain, I think, the curious national mood in which we voted this week. I have never myself known an election in which people were less excited. Um, 
except possibly for President Clinton and his wife, his daughter, and the cat socks. One of the most striking findings of the exit poll is that when you ask people if President Clinton will, wins, how will you feel? 30% of Americans said they would be concerned. 22% said they would be scared. 33% would be optimistic, and only 13% would be excited. So you have there a clear majority of the scared and concerned over the optimistic and excited in a country which voted for the president. It really is a remarkable um, curiosity. If I had to coin a phrase to describe the national mood today, it would be the morning after in America. Uh, in the words of Fred Astor, we have been building up to an awful letdown. This was no great campaign of principle. Most voters felt that not a great deal was at stake. And now that the results are in, what do we have to look forward to? Well, of course, one of the problems is that we have to look forward to continued congressional investigations uh, of the president. Um, and that is going to make life more rather than less difficult for everyone. Otherwise, we are crossing a bridge to an undefined future. Let me illustrate one of the problems here. Um, what is one of the most long-term uh, political problems facing this country? It is, of course, entitlements, in particular Social Security and Medicare, and the costs they impose. On present projections, if we do nothing, the baby boom generation will start receiving benefits in large numbers in 2002. Ironically, the very year at which the budget is supposed to be coming into balance. Um, but that is the very year in which expenditures will start to rise, and they very soon are rising dramatically. It is estimated that the total cost of entitlements will equal 30 by the year 2030, which is not as far away as all that. Um, total cost of entitlements will amount to 38% of the gross domestic product. Now, at the present time, total federal revenues are only 19% of the gross domestic product. So if those figures are borne out uh, in fact, you are facing a situation in which the cost of entitlements will absorb all of the taxation, sorry, double the taxation revenue that we now pay with no money left pay for defense, police, or any of the business of the federal government apart from entitlements. Um, and we will be paying, as I say, twice uh, as much in tax as we are today. Now, of course, it can't happen. And as the economist Herb Stein points out in Stein's Law, if something can't happen, then it won't happen. Uh, but how will it be averted? Taxes, will we increase taxes? Neither the voters nor the Republicans will tolerate tax hikes, and certainly not of the scale required here. Serious cuts in Medicare, Social Security, and entitlements then. Well, neither the voters nor the Democrats will tolerate such cuts, and certainly not on the scale required here. And we have just in this election voted to postpone any painful decisions, one way or the other, for the next few years. Now, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. But we will eventually, I believe, decide to move further in a conservative direction. And if we do, that will mean reform of entitlements, something on the lines of the Chilean or the Singapore, Singapore models, that is, gradually replacing federal schemes with legally mandated private savings, investment, and pension plans. But that lies very much in the future, and the future is problematic. Because if there is a long-term trend to the right in the political world, as I have been arguing, there is an entirely opposite current of opinion uh, running in America's cultural, social, and even legal institutions. The media, universities, publishing, the law schools, Hollywood, television, all show a marked trend to the left. It is quite rare to find conservatives in any great numbers in America's newsrooms, 
or at its high tables at the university uh, or in Hollywood. Uh, the evidence for this is voluminous. But for the curious, it is summarized very conveniently by the sociologist Stanley Rothman in his just published essay on America's uh, strategic elites. Of the many dramatic statistics in that book, I would cite merely the, the fact that over 80% of elite journalists supported Clinton in 1992. And I would guess that probably the same thing happened this year since he tended to do better in almost all groups. Now, in 1920, the cultural dominance of the left might have been shrugged off. Uh, but today, culture exercises a profound influence on how we live. Uh, just list the issues on which cultural institutions and social customs and the changes in them in recent years have altered our lives. Um, easier and more frequent divorce and the growing ch number of children without fathers that this produces. Um, higher rates of illegitimacy and the growing number of children without fathers that that produces. Increasing crime, and in particular, violent crime. The spread of pornography, and in general, the, in the increasing brutalization and crudeness of popular culture, especially in such matters as violent films. The spread of drugs and of the drug culture, and of the casualties of that culture. Uh, the weakening of all forms of social authority, especially parental authority, but also the authority of teachers, and the authority, incidentally, of the church, which is demonstrated every time an opinion poll asks believers, uh, self-described believers, their attitude uh, on traditional Christian teaching in various ways. Now, having just briefly looked at the list of ways in which our lives have been changed, consider how much more the lives of ordinary Americans are affected by these social changes rather than by merely political changes like a lower tax rate or uh, alteration in the projections for the budget deficit. Now, why uh, is this happening uh, and what can be done about it? Well, it's happening for a number of reasons. First of all, television is a major influence on our lives uh, in a way that uh, mass media simply was not in earlier times. Young people's attitudes to a whole range of things, and sex for instance, is bound to be influenced by the fact that an awful lot of sex seems to be going on on television. So even if the only effect is to make them feel that they've been left out, uh, they're going to feel that the world is uh, much more sexually saturated uh, than it is. Uh, the point was well put by the English poet Philip Larkin. Sexual intercourse began in 1963, between the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles' first LP, but that was too late for me. <laughs> Secondly, because the courts determine an increasing number of political decisions, um, uh, uh, they affect our lives. For example, uh, they have, the Supreme Court has just, in effect, decreed that single-sex education cannot be publicly financed, uh, thus causing VMI and the Citadel to open their doors to uh, women soldiers. Now, in doing so, of course, those institutions will, in effect, change. Uh, they will not be providing what they provided before. And the range of choice open to people in the society will have disappeared. That is a fairly major cultural change. And yet it's something which was determined by the courts. Uh, finally, the cultural world, in any clash with the political world, is much more self-confident. Cultural icons figures from Hollywood are much more self-confident in dealing with politicians than politicians are in dealing with them. In fact, politicians are nervous of tampering with the culture in any way. My uh, example of this is the spat between Dan Quayle and Murphy Brown a few years ago. Everybody now, I think, concedes that in that argument, Dan Quayle was absolutely right. Murphy Brown was in a very minor way, encouraging a culture um, 
that proved of illegitimacy and therefore was helping to wreak further havoc on the poor. But he lost the debate at the time in spades. He was made to look foolish, prim, and unsophisticated. Or take a more important example. Uh, Norman Podhoretz, the editor, former editor of Commentary, has pointed out in an article in that magazine uh, that there is now a clear clash between the cultural world and the political world over the question of gay marriages. Uh, media, Hollywood, the courts, are obviously moving in the direction of approving of gay marriage. The political world has just passed the Defense of Marriage Act to, in effect, prevent the courts imposing it across the country should it be adopted by the courts in Hawaii. Now, Pudhoretz asks, which side in that battle would you put your money on? And he clearly suggests that he believes that in the end, the political world will lose and the courts will, in effect, bring about another social change as they have outlawed single-sex education. Now, one doesn't have to be on his side in the specific argument or in either of those cases to feel that there is something alarming about a situation in which the courts decide more and more of our lives and the, and the democratic institutions accountable to the voters fewer and fewer. Decisions on these matters are increasingly removed from American democracy and transferred to bodies like the courts or the federal agencies which respond less to the people and the voters than they do to their fellow members of the cultural elite. This argument is developed at length in um, Judge Robert Bork's recent book, Slouching to Gomorrah. But the consequences of these policies are then felt and have to be borne by the political world. If the culture encourages illegitimacy, it is the Congress and the states that are going to have to raise the revenue and the resources to pay for the resulting welfare bill. If the elite culture discourages a real crackdown on crime, it is the political world that will have to pick up the tab in the form of higher spending on crime prevention and prisons. This is um, a politically and profoundly important question. And there are no easy or pat answers to it. But in general, I would suggest two things. If we seriously believe in a government of laws, in a curious sense, we have to halt the drift of power away from democratic institutions to the courts. We have to, the courts have got to be persuaded that their role is a much more interpretive one and much less a lawmaking one than in recent years they have come to believe. But to make that work, we will also need to strengthen and reinvigorate democracy itself. And here we move into the third and most difficult set of problems, uh, the question of national unity and America's common culture. Because democracy is a conversation within the national family. It is a never-ending conversation in which the topics may change and in which individuals may come and go as they are born and die, but in which the participants at any one time all have to feel that they are somehow permanently related to one another, uh, that they are accountable to one another, and that they are, in the old phrase, members one of another. George Orwell caught what I mean when he wrote in, of 1930s England, uh, ruled by conservatives when he was a socialist, that England, he said, is like a family with the wrong members in charge. That, in a sense, is how we should feel about the victory of our opponents in a democratic election. They're members of the family. Unfortunately, they're the wrong ones. Now, in democracy, we have to feel, ultimately, that we are all in the same ship, that we're all on the same side, that we're all inspired by the desire to help each other uh, by goodwill and by a public interest that transcends all our different private, sectional, class, ethnic, or other interests that we all both literally and figuratively speak the same language. Now, America achieved this, and it was a remarkable achievement, against great odds, because it did not begin, as most European countries did, with a homogenous population. It took people from all over the world and transformed them into Americans. That is why it is not quite correct to call America a nation of immigrants. It is, as Garrett Hardin has pointed out, a nation of assimilated ex-immigrants and their descendants. 
To be sure, this process of assimilation was a two-way traffic. The new immigrants brought many good things with them, and they in, infused the common American culture uh, with a, a number of things, from jazz, the Jewish novel, uh, Mexican food, and um, both sorts of salsa. But that culture, that American culture, uh, remained a common one. And the uh, American nationality was an inclusive one which uh, drew in people of every race and ethnic group and gave them a common overriding inclusive American identity because it was shaped by a common language, the English language, and the ideas and culture of liberty that English has carried with it worldwide, but particularly in the United States. It is this national unity, essentially a cultural one, um, based upon a common culture and a national language that is now suffering erosion. Americans are increasingly encouraged to think of themselves not as such, but as members of some other ethnicity or faux ethnicity, as members of a particular race, as members of a particular ethnic group, as members of a uh, particular sexual uh, group, um, gay or lesbian, uh, as a member of a particular group defined politically like a feminist, uh, a member of a bureaucratic category drawn up uh, to, make some eth uh, to make ethnic politics work under affirmative action quotas. Identity politics increasingly means the assertion of an identity that is more important than the all-inclusive American identity. And we know the policies that encourage this. Bilingualism, uh, multiculturalism, which is not the idea of a common culture which contains elements of all the cultures which have come to America, but is the idea of America as a federation of cultures or a federation of uh, nationalities in which people are first members of some other group and only secondarily Americans. We've seen the history standards much debated over because they have described not the American people but the American peoples. Um, and in response to, um, long before these standards, in response to pressure, group, pressure from different groups over the years, history has been written and rewritten in order to favor a particular political agenda when, of course, the overriding agenda of stressing the development of America is the one that tends to get lost in that. Um, uh, there are a, a number of these uh, po political policies which tend to make us think of ourselves as separate from one another and not as members of the same family. We see the fruits of them in such matters as the growing difference between, uh, distance rather, between different groups. Um, at universities, people won't uh, be in the same dorm. Different racial groups will sit at different tables in the canteen. Particularly odd that that should happen at a university. We see worse relations between the sexes. We see the spread, for example, of uh, irredentist Mexican politics in California, particularly among uh, um, uh, university um, 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 students who very often have no uh, do not, uh, several generations departed from Mexico, but who've been given this, in a sense, artificial identity uh, in their education, in the educational process. Uh, and we get a sense of the increasing balkanization of the country and uh, the way in which, uh, as I say, the group tends to take precedence over the unity of the country. The problem with a multiplicity of identities is uh, that they are going to produce conflict. For example, in order for my identity uh, to work, really, it's not something I have to believe in myself. Other people have to believe in it too. They have to accept me. And yet, the most multiculturalist, most multicultural feminist is never going to accept uh, the idea of um, an Islamic identity because she feels that denies women their proper role in society. Uh, there is a moral component of identity which is often forgotten in this area. And if uh, we hive off into different identities, we are in effect choosing different moral views of the world as well, and that will lead to further conflict. The American view of this, it seems to me, traditionally is rather better. It was, um, if I can choose an example finally to a uh, 
uh, it would be this. Uh, you may know the Pirates of Penzance, in which the major general has bought, um, has bought an estate. The estate contains a graveyard. The graveyard contains ancestors. He says that he bought them fur and square. They are now his ancestors. Well, in exactly the same way, the newest immigrant to the United States who becomes an American is someone who has, in fact, now adopted the founding fathers as his own ancestors. Genetically, they may not be, but in a more important national sense, they are. What does this mean in terms of practical politics? Well, we must insist, as Linda Chavez has eloquently done, that the true culture of expression in America is not a patchwork quilt of cultures, distinct and hostile, but a broader and enriched common culture that celebrates the achievements of different ethnic groups, but does so as part of a common history in a commonly understood language. I think that mandates opposition to creeping bilingualism, to quotas, and I come to accept some restraints on immigration as a necessary to allow America to absorb and assimilate the wave of immigration of the last 15 years. But we must base this set of policies quite explicitly upon the continuing evolution of an American um, national identity that encompasses all other identities. Shouldn't be necessary to make such obvious points, but then we are dealing with politicians. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is editor of the National Review, Mr. John O'Sullivan, who has just spoken on the topic, A Conservative Worldview and American Politics. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the Center for the American Experiment. While the ushers collect the questions from those here in the sanctuary, those listening on the radio, may call in a question by calling the church at 332-3421. Mr. O'Sullivan, uh, in, your com in your address to us, you said yes to compassion, but in a way that does not further plunge people into dependency. Can you, in, in a nutshell, uh, respond to the uh, caricature of conservatives as uh, without compassion, and can you tell us how a conservative worldview deals with the larger matter of those who are poor and uh, oppressed? Yes. Um, I'd make two points. One is that conservatives, I think, very often reject the word compassion because I, I think we feel it has been debased by politicians. Uh, I think it was Sumner who said that compassion was A, getting together with B to decide what C shall do for X. And, um, it, you know, one does feel when one listens to um, politicians over the years talking in grand terms about how deeply they feel, one's reminded of Emerson's line, the, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster we counted the spoons. But on the substantive point, I would give a very simple example. Um, let us take the case of dealing with um, young single parents. Uh, I am opposed to a, a policy of giving young single parents um, a flat, uh, sorry, an apartment of their own, and, the, um, and a regular income to go with it, because I think that that will encourage uh, uh, or will facilitate uh, those young people who want to get away from home and establish themselves uh, or simply want a child to love them, because very often that's a motive, to, to embark upon the course which was going to make them and their children very unhappy over the years. What I would suggest in these circumstances is that we provide, uh, the, unambiguously, this may cost more money, but it's not, money is not the point here, that we ensure that single parents uh, in these circumstances get aid in the form of supervised accommodation. So there is, uh, let us face it, young women uh, do not want to live in supervised accommodation, and that is a disincentive to anybody getting in the position. No one's going to get pregnant in order to be able to run, move into um, a home run by nuns and have to get up at seven in the morning and make their own bed and so on. But, but, but the point is that uh, 
if anyone is in a difficult situation, the help should be available. Uh, but we shouldn't offer the help in such a way as to encourage them to get into the difficult situation in the first place. Also, it's, this person says, it seems to me that resourceful is more meaningful than conservative. Your comments, please. I don't quite understand the last point. Resourceful is more... Resourceful, uh, the word resourceful yes. is more meaningful than conservative or maybe more descriptive. Um, well, if I think that means... If that means what I think it means, it's really saying that conservatives are people who are try to bring imagination to social problems and solve them in a creative way. And uh, I would like to think that's true. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, it's not invariably so. But certainly, I think um, it, it, conservative is a very hard word to define because it has meant different things at different places at different times in history. What it means at this country at this moment is two things. It means that somebody who believes that the uh, society, rather than the government, should undertake most responsibilities, and that the job of the government is essentially to provide uh, um, a modest level of services, but otherwise to provide people with the capacity to get on and run their own lives effectively. But secondly, one has to recognize that the, a free society requires virtuous people. Um, the reason is that responsibility, looking after yourself, looking after those who depend on you, being prepared to help others in need, these are qualities which we don't simply get because we're lucky. We generally have them because we were well brought up and um, we were lived in communities at which high standards were expected from us. Well, uh, conservatives, I think, believe that communities and families and um, churches should try to bring up people to be the kind of independent and self-reliant and compassionate people that can make a free society work. One has to recognize, as I think I would argue some libertarians do not, that a, a free society which is composed of vicious and irresponsible people will not last long. Conservative voices seem to constantly promote government bashing. How does this improve responsible government? Well, government bashing uh, uh, is a phrase that it, uh, tells you that the person is, I mean, I, I think uh, the word bashing, like Japan bashing, normally is a way of describing someone else's argument in a way that that person wouldn't always accept. Now, I, I am somebody, as a, a conservative obviously believes in government uh, because a conservative be believes that liberty and authority are two principles which are at least equal. Some conservatives would argue that authority comes before liberty, but only in a society of uh, authoritative order can liberty be ensured. But um, I, uh, I'm now sorry, I've lost my train of thought here. Um, uh, but the, the basic point here, I think, is that uh, conservatives believe in a limited role for government. They believe that government is essential to the working of society on the one hand, but they recognize the truth that liberals don't recognize, which is the more extensive a government does not mean the more authoritative or strong or effective a government. I lived in Britain uh, in the 1970s when government was very extensive indeed. It covered almost every aspect of one's life from the cradle to the grave. But it was subject to the whims of over-mighty subjects like the trade unions who was not able to enforce the law against them. A government which concentrates on its primary tasks is more likely to do the job well than a government which neglects those primary tasks, like upholding the law and protecting people against crime, and instead devotes itself to 101 things which society would do better on its own. Here in Minnesota, one of the nation's uh, most liberal senators was re-elected by a significant percentage. How do you account for the re-election of Senator Wellstone? Well, I would be foolish to um, try to explain to people who know Senator Wellstone far better than I do exactly why they voted for him. I will just hazard one guess. Uh, from what I've seen of the senator, it seems to me that he is an independent-minded man. He's his own man. He's not someone who's going to jump at the orders of the whips um, in Congress, at the orders of his party, at other people's orders. It's been my observation over the years that ordinary people are very capable, more so very often than people at the top of politics are very capable of recognizing and admiring 
good personal qualities of that kind, a willingness to stand up for the principles you believe in, even when they disagree with you very strongly indeed on what the principles should be. I'll give you an example from my own family. My mother, who's a pretty strong conservative, is a great admirer of the deputy leader of the Labour Party, John Prescott, because she says he's almost one of the only strong, independent human beings in the party, and, and indeed in, in politics at the moment. And I think that's what, that's, that is, I think, the way we should look at things. We should look among, uh, first at the qualities of the person, and then we can, di we can argue with them about the philosophy. One person says racism seems to be on the increase in direct relationship to the rise of the radical right and their harsh rhetoric minority, about minorities and uh, action towards others not like the majority. Would you comment on that, please? Certainly. Um, I would have thought that uh, uh, racism uh, cannot really be said to be on the increase in this country. In the we're talking about white racism and uh, uh, when you compare the situation that existed in, um, let us say, the 1950s or the 1960s, where you had apartheid in Virginia and the South. And so uh, at the moment, uh, you can't say that. I would think that there is a resent. I, I think what's happened over the last uh, 25 years, 30 years, is we have adopted race-conscious policies in a whole series of uh, whole areas of life university, entry, uh, recruitment to business, uh, promotion. Um, uh, almost uh, all of life is now touched by uh, quota and preference policies. Well, if you adopt race-conscious policies, people are going to become conscious of race. I mean, I see no way around that. My own feeling is that we'd be well advised to phase out those, those kind of policies and replace them instead with, po with policies which I think everybody would support that look to the real needs of um, minority communities. And those real needs, I think, are very obvious. One of the most important is establishing a decent prospect of public safety in poorer communities, because the poor suffer from the increase in crime far more than the rest of us do. We're able to insulate ourselves to some extent in a way that they cannot. So uh, that would be one policy. Another would be I would try to improve the quality of education that is provided to the poor Americans and minority Americans. It is, quite candidly, a disgrace at the moment in the public schools. And there are many uh, ways we could do it, and I would, be I would propose school choice and vouchers and other ideas like that. But I, I wouldn't be uh, resistant or deaf to ideas from the political left, provided that we attend to improving the real prospects in life of people in the community, rather of minority communities, rather than adopting policies uh, which m make us feel good and compassionate, but which don't affect the lives of poorer minority people. Mr. O'Sullivan, there, there are a number of other questions that the, the audience would like me to ask, but we unfortunately are out of, out of time. I thank you for being with us today at the Town Hall Forum and for your commitment to this ongoing dialogue and conversation in the country. And we look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you all for being with us today at the Town Hall Forum.